Hello everyone, welcome back to episode 3 of Minority Experience Podcast. Today our topic is respectability politics. For some context, respectability politics is a term coined by Evelyn Brooke in Righteous Discontent. The definition is the practice or politic of adapting the manners and morality of the dominant culture as a way to counter negative views of a non-dominant group. Today we have with us discussing this topic, myself, Nakia, and... Naima. And Grady. Um, So I think that respectability politics has a lot to do with, um, like, white comfort and control. White people perceiving their right to be comfortable. Yeah, I think that's something that... um it's not a problem that people feel like they need to be comfortable, but I also think that when they prioritize their needs of comfort over everyone else's, that it becomes something of a, como se dice, like a, I guess it becomes something of a problem. Yeah, like it's when we start to see things happening around the country that limit the advancement of other demographics of people because we are prioritizing the 100-year-old American-made image of a white family. Yeah, I think with the topic of, like, white comfort, it's something that's so ingrained in, like, everybody within our society to the point, like, where you don't even really think about it. Because I know my entire life, if I'm around, like, a white person in, like, some topic regarding, like, race or, like, things like that that I know might will most likely make them feel uncomfortable, I'll just, like, automatically, like, water it down and, like, you know, not say everything I would say if I'm with all people of color or something like that and I feel like just like it's kind of ingrained in me it's also ingrained in them like they kind of expect people to cater to their comfort even if it's not like a conscious thought like this like you know they might not always be thinking oh they better not talk about this around me but like if the topic comes up in their mind like maybe subconsciously or consciously they might just be like oh I don't really want to talk about this Mm. you know It's not a problem to want to be comfortable, but, like, when you're prioritizing your comfort over people's lives, it's like people are talking talking about important issues, and your comfort should not be your top priority here. Right. Mm, We've uh, gotten too comfortable with allowing people to not have conversations that are difficult. Yeah. Um, In general. Some conversations are just going to be uncomfortable. Right. Right. For all parties. And it talks about how, like, you approach the conversation as well. It's kind of, I was talking about this with a professional, a colleague of mine, (laughs) and she was saying that when we don't have conversations, we don't see growth. And when we don't have conversations, there's no one to uphold the mantle of what we're passing down to other people. That we prioritize people not being able to do hard things and being comfortable over the grit that it takes to actually change and grow. I think in our society, a lot is catered towards white people's comfort, which is why they don't want to talk about racism because it would mean that they it, it would mean that they, all of their biases are pretty much on display. When you're talking about it so specifically, it means there's no cover essentially. Mm-hmm. I think this ties a lot into like the concept of professionalism. People will use the term professional as a cover for saying white. For instance, hair, like black people have been, you know, in like workplaces and schools, they've been told to leave. They've been told that that's not up to like dress code or stuff like that because they're just wearing the hair that naturally grows out of their skin. And that's not seen as professional or respectable. And it's seen as more respectable to like fit into white ideals and to like cater to what society says is right, which is, you know, white. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was kind of saying. We have this stereotype of what it means to be like a family, to be a professional, to be a person that is 
more white than we kind of realize. We see things even in the way that we speak, the way that we dress, the way that we act, that people tell us to quote unquote tone down or just leave at the door because of the way in which they were raised to think is right. And right is not white. Yeah, I agree with everything Nikki and Grady have said so far. And especially as Grady kind of started touching on tone policing, I feel like that's a huge thing that I've always experienced growing up black, especially in predominantly white spaces. Like the constant feeling of having to kind of lessen yourself to cater to other people. And you know, you feel like you can't be quote unquote outspoken or like say your thoughts cause you, you're automatically gonna be deemed as like this aggressive and like dominant person when you just, you know, you're expressing your opinion on something like anybody else's and I feel like that's a huge thing with growing up black but especially in my experience growing up as a black like young woman black women are already like kind of seen as violent and ratchet yeah and like overly like masculine they're just kind of loud yeah loud and they're dehumanized a lot so it's like there's different ways you can kind of react to that growing up as a young black woman and and for me personally, like, I, it's been hard to navigate, like, do I do everything I can to avoid any of these stereotypes or, like, do I just be myself regardless of that? And it's taken a lot of time to realize that it's unfortunate that that's even something that you have to navigate being, like, a young black woman who's just trying to kind of still navigate who they are as a person but you also have to overanalyze every situation that you are in when you're in public because it kind of feels like all of your actions are under a microscope and you know anything you do wrong like people can make a huge assumption about you as an entire person like maybe if you you start laughing too loud or you get too into a conversation you have this feeling people are already making these assumptions about you and like you're not professional and you're not this and you're not that and yeah things like that it's just kind of a thing that I know has constantly been something in my head growing up black and I feel like that's a an experience a lot of black people have probably dealt with yeah I agree with that uh, tone policing is definitely like a real problem it's like they're focusing in on all of these things that's the whole deal with respectability politics it's mainly a distraction you're trying to focus on the things that don't matter like somebody's tone it like because your tone doesn't matter when you're literally fighting for your right these things happen and they happen so insidiously sometimes people don't even realize when they're doing it and it ties into other things as well like AAVE where people don't respect that as like a dialect of its own. People think it's just ghetto speak until a white person does yeah, it. Yeah, until it's pop until culture. It's, until it's pop mm. culture. Um, mm. But you know, people think when black people do it, it's it's, it's just unprofessional. It's ghetto. It's ghetto. It's disrespectful. Mm -hmm. Like if you're talking that way to an authority figure, teachers like teachers have actually like made fun of AAVE when they're when they're yeah. um, making up um, what like people have said to them. People either fetishize and romanticize things that black people do, or they call it raunchy and ghetto and, and kind of just, fun of it, yeah. yeah. But yeah. I definitely know what you're talking about too, Nikia, when like a teacher will like show an example to a class and be like, kind of making fun of how a, t a student talked to them. And it's usually like things with AAVE. Yeah. Or how it's not considered real grammar. Oh yeah. Like in yeah. academia, it's not considered it's not considered something to be taken seriously. Mm. It's a thing within the black community as well. Like I remember an hour long conversation over text with my aunt and my mother 
It was me and my cousin versus my aunt and my mother about acts versus ask. It all started because I sent a TikTok saying that they actually came from two different words mm. and they're thus both equally valid. And and they were saying, well, you can't do that. You can't say that in front of the white. Like, you're not going to get these opportunities. People are going to laugh. People are going to not take you seriously if you say this, if you say these things. And it's like, we know we're just saying it shouldn't be this way. And we, we kept saying that over and over and over again. And it was just caught in this loop. I, I think that's definitely another thing with older generations of black people is them also sometimes tone policing mm. black youth and, and not even just tone policing, just like saying you can't do this because you will not be seen. You will not get these opportunities. You will not be seen as professional. You will not get this. You will not do that. And I think the... The sad part about it is some of it, like, there is some truth to it because that is how this, how oh. our society is built. Mm-hmm. But it's also, like, we shouldn't be okay with that yeah. either. Like, and it's I not... think it's, like, I think it's, like, a trauma response from oh, these yeah. older people because mm-hmm. it's, like, we're forcing our kids to fall in line because mm-hmm. we don't want anything bad to happen to exactly. them, right? Exactly, yeah. And, and then we're kind of, like, well, and we can't like, put up with that. It's, though. like, okay. And they can't be comfortable even as like, who they are. Yeah. yeah. yeah like, exactly. I definitely have experienced that, like, the difference of reactions you get from older black people based on the way you dress or the way your hair is in public or the way you talk. And it's, like, it's kind of hard to deal with because it's, like, I'm already getting this from, like, society. I don't want to get this from my family or like black people you know Mm. it's almost as if they were taught that who they are as a person is unprofessional and not Mm -hmm. good enough for society so we walk around and we kind of observe and feel the repercussions of them not being comfortable in their own skin like you got to straighten your hair okay why because that's what's professional is it is it truly professional to have you know straight hair and do all these different things that were considered professional 150 million years ago, but at what point do we start to change the definition of what is professional? Right, like we can't just keep putting up with society saying our existence is just not exactly. enough mm-hmm. or it is too much, you exactly. know? Like we can't just be okay with that. There, It doesn't like, make any sense. It doesn't. We have made a lot of progress in society to the point where obviously we have more freedom than like our grandparents did when it comes with speaking up about things but like and I think because of that we like have more space to make some changes that they didn't have as much as we did I'd say obviously it took a lot of courage from people like 50 years ago to speak up about things than it does for somebody to just post online and say this isn't okay And although there are still barriers for us today as a race to make change, there are significantly less barriers than it was for our ancestors and our grandparents. And some of those, like, advantages we have over them is the access to knowledge and technology. And because of that, we shouldn't be putting up with people tone policing and, you know, saying our hair and our our clothes and our language isn't professional and just constantly catering to this idea of you know the ideal professional white person that we're never we're never going to be and we shouldn't try to be Mm. yeah i think it also plays into victim blaming uh trigger warning police brutality whenever we hear about another black person who is 
killed by officers, the first question people ask is like, what are they wearing? What were they doing? What do they do? Shouldn't have been dressed like a thug or something like that. And it's just that, that also plays into it. Like what is respectable as a person, like essentially determines how much your life is worth. Mm, what does it even mean to be dressed like a thug? I was gonna like, say, yeah. Is it like, like with your hood up and stuff like that? Cause, cause people, cause white people do that all the time. Exactly. Mm, it really is a we've weaponized aspects of like minority groups to kind of it it there's a duality to it you weaponize it and it makes some people more comfortable because that means that they're better than you because you know as a larger african-american male my size it can intimidate people so they like make it a thing to bully people and make fun of you because you are bigger or it can be used as a weapon, right? That they make aspects of who you are as like something violent to kind of scare people into submission um, to ensure that you never do anything that could potentially make someone uncomfortable because you're too worried that who as who you are, someone's going to be afraid of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's been done for generations, decades of people just weaponizing and humiliating aspects of various minority cultures to suit an agenda. Speaking of agenda, (laughs) (laughs) white comfort, like we were talking about white comfort as well. All these book bannings just really, really encapsulate that. I think that concept of white comfort, people not wanting to be uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and what and what voices are respectable, what voices are good enough to be heard in the classroom amongst white children. It's also, it also brings to mind like the story of the Tennessee Three. This was something recent that happened where it was three Tennessee lawmakers, Justin, uh, Justin Jones, Justin Pearson, and Gloria Johnson, who all stood with protesters who were protesting lack of gun control. Two of the three were voted to be expelled from the house. Um, and it was the two black men, not the white woman. Mm. And it all just felt like, well, they were getting too uppity. Like, reading about that, I would think that was something that would happen in, like, the 60s, not now. They were fortunately voted back in, but it was a real moment about the three because they didn't meet house decorum rules, and that's why they were originally voted to be expelled. Mm-hmm. And how those concepts of like respectability, where they're literally fighting for people's lives. Mm-hmm. And still, the bigger deal was their decorum, their respectability. Mm-hmm. How can you mold yourself to fit into the box that I think you should mm-hmm. be into? And if you can't fit into that box, then you don't deserve a seat at the table. Like, yeah. that is the message that we've been hearing for literally 200 years. Mm-hmm. If you can't fit, if you don't change your name from what you had in Africa to what you have here, then you can't be on my plantation and you got to go to somewhere else worse. Mm-hmm. If you can't wear a skirt below the knees, then you can't sit on this bus. If you can't change your tone, you can't sit in my classroom. If you can't straighten your hair, if you can't take your braids out. Exactly. It is the same thing with a different smile on it, and we call it a different story, and it's the same old book so in our lit class we're reading invisible man by ralph ellison and this book touches a lot on respectability politics and basically this this book touches a lot on the different ways that black people are sort of handling the situation that they're in in 1930s america um 
how they are handling white people, different ways of handling white people. And the narrator changes from this, like, person who's always trying to fit in with respectability politics, who's always trying to do it um, as a way to, like, say, as a way to say that he is a good black person, a way to fall in line, fall into that role of good black person. He even quotes Booker T. Washington in it, who was very into respectability politics. And for making a speech quoting like Booker T. Washington and and saying that the black people need to submit to the white man, he gets a a university scholarship. And that's like that carrot on the string of you'll make it to the top if you just erase who you are. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you just appeal to what is respectable and professional. Mm. Mm -hmm. If you submit to my comfort. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to listen to what I have to say? Do what I think you should do to make me comfortable mm-hmm. in my space or what has been my space? Mm-hmm. And I think the like idea and theme of comparing invisibility to being black, trying to navigate white spaces, I think is very powerful. And it's one of those things that I don't even really have to question like, hmm, why'd they do that? Like I it immediately mm-hmm. clicks in my head like, yeah because Mm -hmm. I feel like invisibility is a huge thing that me personally, I've always kind of like struggled with growing up black. It's like, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm either like really trying to, like I just want to blend in, like I don't want to stand out more than I already do because of my race or something, you know, growing up at least. Like it, it takes time to kind of grow into myself as a person and kind of not think about how society wants me to tone down my blackness or my blackness look a certain way that they expect or blah, 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 you know, et cetera. But I think invisibility is a a perfect way to explain respectability politics in a way and that kind of idea of just catering to other people's comfortability and just kind of not trying to stand out too much like I don't want to draw too much attention to myself I just want to get by I want to be seen as like a good you know things like that which are themes within Invisible Man Um, and I think it's a really good piece of work to read if you want to kind of have an idea more about respectability politics and I agree with everything Nakia said I think she explained it really well as far as how it ties into this topic Mm -hmm. I think that even circles back to like you were saying the book bannings and the lack of conversation that we have about just various issues. If you don't talk about it, you can make it invisible. Mm -hmm. Um, If you ban knowledge of it, ban the conversation of it, Mm -hmm. then it becomes something that you can try to avoid. But I think that's where people are trying to go. Like they're just trying to eliminate the concept of race in general, Mm. right? Like. It doesn't exist, but it's too late. Like, we all know it exists. We are the first generation to be removed from segregation and, like, legal racism. So Millennials were. Well, you know, I, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking in terms of, like, my mom was born into it. Yeah. Um, but I, there is a generation that's between my mom and I. But, yeah, like, there... This is this is my family's first generation. I'm the first one to be not born into a legally segregated society. Mm-hmm. So to try and eliminate like even the concept of cultural race and differentiation <clears throat> is dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Just try and pretend it doesn't exist and the racism will go away. Like yeah. that is just the most asinine thing I've ever heard. And it's the most infuriating thing too. Like when you you literally watch and hear people just brush things under the rug or like when you're growing up in like elementary school and they just kind of like 
scoot past like mm-hmm. slavery, like Martin Luther King, and then he yeah. saved the day, and you know, Kumbaya, hold hands. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, and <laughs> literally. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because, I, not to do the TikTok sound, I've been meaning to talk about that for a minute. But yeah, I uh, am okay. They really like quote unquote sanitized his yeah. image. Mm-hmm. But he, like, white people hated him. Yeah. He literally got assassinated. Like he was called he was the not... biggest threat to exactly. national. He wasn't as peaceful as like, like the FBI. Like I, yeah. Like why people think that he was just this? People think that he was just this amazing. Like people think that he was just this amazing, well-respected like, figure. Yeah, and it's like you can't. He was, like he was, he was respected by some black people yeah some black people some white people and then everyone else is just like who is this guy and then people people will try and use that sanitized image of him as like a condemning of people who are you know more upstanding and like like and the comparison to malcolm x too too. Mm -hmm. like it was always like MLK is what you should want to be for and activism. Malcolm X is not two types Mm-mm. of black people. And the Black Panther and like the Black Panther Party too violent. Too, too violent. Too extreme. They were doing too much, except like like and they were. And what's most infuriating about that is they were nonviolent with people who were nonviolent with them. Exactly, mm-hmm. they were protecting themselves. Exactly. Now we the glorify the right. You yeah. Know? We give exactly. people guns in schools and things, yeah. but we still criminalize. We're teaching our five year olds how to use a gun and posting it on the internet. But mm-hmm. when like, black, but when black people decide to open themselves. carry to protect themselves from racism then it's bad yeah and literally and literally being lynched like mm-hmm. they were protecting themselves and their family and their community like, but everybody is taught like from a young age like in our generation that the black panther party was this like extre- extremely unnecessarily like, yo, violent like yo, they were the, feeding breakfast to children like yeah. what are you talking about and it's and it's the misinformation that is the biggest thing it's just so aggravating to exactly. especially once you grow up and you st- or if your parents are all already telling you the correct information, you have to go to school and, and or just see it like growing up in society, like this misinformation that people have around black history as a whole and not even just history, but like present day black issues. It's just there's so much misinformation that people feel so comfortable spreading just for comfortability. And again, like just kind of grazing past those you know situations when that it comes... was just a blip yeah it's just like yeah and then this happened and then let's the move on because i'm uncomfortable talking and teaching about this when there's two black kids in the room and everybody else is white mm-hmm. or when you are like one of those black people in the room and and you get to the topic of slavery and stuff like that and everybody's everybody looking at you, you. yeah mm-hmm. and it's just like how do you feel about slavery <laughs> and it's just like ugh. and another thing i think is especially with the book bannings and people trying to avoid conversations on um racism white people avoiding conversations on racism or slavery in, in the past i feel like one of the main reasons why some some white people do get so uncomfortable is because they think like they're taking it as like a personal attack when we're just making sure that these conversations don't get lost because we can't just never talk about things that built this country and that still have an effect today on every black person alive like we're not just 
not going to talk about it, but we're not also coming for you as a person saying you enslaved me. Like that's yeah. not what anybody's ever <laughs> exactly. doing. And that's how I think some of them take it. Cause otherwise, why would you feel so offended that we're just talking about things that a need fact. to be talked? Mm. Yeah. We're just talking saying facts. facts. Nobody's coming for you as a person. Like I feel like it's, it's all about how you approach the conversation. Other, like and if they tough, weren't so like, like offended, like they wouldn't be making laws to take books out of schools and take lessons out of less like of out of curriculum like that that need to be learned like i feel like it's almost i feel like it's also like cognitive dissonance if you um because if you go too deep into like exploring what white supremacy is mm -hmm. you may like confront some things about yourself yeah. that you didn't see mm -hmm. were there and like many white people want to see themselves as just like this completely yep. not racist person mm -hmm. but like cognitive mm -hmm. dissonance is just what happens when your actions don't align with what you perceive to be your values exactly and so people mm. get really upset when that happens but the way i see it it's like we're we're all raised within these systems yeah. we're going to make mistakes we're going to we're gonna have to learn and grow from them and you're gonna and have to like, unlearn exactly. things too because if you're being taught like white white supremacy and racism whether it's directly or like subtly from your parents or your grandparents as like from a young age that's not your fault mm -hmm. it becomes your fault if you choose to not educate yourself and Willful unlearn ignorance. right and, mm -hmm. and unlearn that because nobody chose to grow up in america like us in a society that already was built on slavery and racism like mm -hmm. we none of us made that decision the only decision we can make as people is to unlearn anything that we were taught and educate ourselves like yeah. mm -hmm. and do something to make a difference yeah. like yeah. once you know better you can do better exactly yeah. it's literally why i was saying like it's embedded in the culture it's no yeah. longer just about systemic but it's embedded in the culture to just kind of be who you are and roll with it exactly and if you're not willing to grow and learn and acknowledge that sometimes you have to go through uncomfortable things to be a better person then you're never going to actually make a difference in society. We're going to be stuck looking at the same America in 60 years. That r makes me think of the Confederate flag, like the way they just say, it's just Southern, it's it's southern pride. Yeah. It's just Southern culture. Yeah. You're literally divorcing it from its actual history. Yeah, and they don't even want to have the conversation of why. What, why would you why even be proud celebrating of being, that? Yeah, why are you even like celebrating the losing side but also it is racist <laughs> mm -hmm. like they say it's just no no it is racist it's too all right no, not only not. did y'all lose but it's rights to do it's racist. Mm -hmm. like yeah so yeah. that's another thing that makes me think of it it's just like because when things like that come up they don't want to say oh it's because i'm racist they're just gonna be like it's just my southern pride mm -hmm. <laughs> like yeah. or they'll say well yeah i mean i don't like it too much but it's my fan like my family does it like you know my family's into that like i grew up around the confederate flag so i just take pride in it like you don't have to Excuse <laughs> like, you don't <laughs> you're not stuck in right. making one decision for the rest of your life right. yeah so that's just one of the main things that i think is something to always keep in mind is just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean that the conversations don't need to be had because yeah. I, I can definitely say I'm not necessarily comfortable talking about black trauma but that doesn't mean it doesn't need to be talked about mm -hmm. like yeah. yeah yeah thank you all for tuning in this this has been episode three of the minority experience podcast respectability politics thank you bye thank bye. you bye bye